Today's reading comes from the book of Leviticus, chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, and Numbers, chapter 1, verse 1. We'll be reading from the New Living Translation. Please follow along in your own Bible or as the text is presented on the screens above. The Lord called to Moses from the tabernacle and said to him, Give the following instructions to the people of Israel. When you present an animal as an offering to the Lord, you may take it from your herd of cattle or your flock of sheep and goats. A year after Israel's departure from Egypt, the Lord spoke to Moses in the tabernacle in the wilderness of Sinai. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is JD. I'm one of the pastors here at Pine Lake Covenant Church. I'm excited. Who was that? <laughs> was that for real? I'm going to tie my shoes, okay, so I don't trip. Um, but yeah, my name is JD. I'm one of the pastors here. Thank you for the whistle. I've never been whistled at before a sermon. That's, that's new. That's new. Uh, I just want to say a couple of things really quickly. Uh, we are in this season of renovation, this season of change. Uh, we are rolling out a lot of stuff before Easter. We've done a lot already, and there's things to be done. But after, after service today, we're actually going to be ripping up carpet up here because we're going to be framing a new stage over the next few weeks. And so listen, you're going to be in this season. And on Easter Sunday, right, the longing for resu- resurrection is going to be felt in your longing for all of this to be beautiful. And it will be. It will be. I promise you. Um, I want to say first a couple of quick thank yous. Um, I want to start with this morning. So actually, let's, let's start previously throughout the week. So um, the first is Bill Kistler. Where's Bill? Is he in here? Will you stand up, Bill? Hey, can we give Bill a round of an applause? Yeah. Yeah. So the reason why, okay, Bill is being uh, honored, I guess, um, is because Bill did all of the electrical work in here by himself as a gift to the church. Um, It's really unbelievable. Unbelievable. And... And I mean, it, it required like taking out all the electrical, you know, doing whole new circuits. We went from 12 circuits to four circuits and then running lines all the way along. I mean, I was here throughout the week to see them do it. And Bill was in the lift and it was, it was, it was an amazing thing. And it wasn't, you know, one person doing all this work. Physically, it's hard. It's, you know, all of that. But thank you, Bill, so much from the bottom of our hearts. I mean, really, words don't express that. But thank you. Thank you so much. Um, the second people I want to say thank you to is Focus. Um, Dave Darnell's back there. Everyone say hi, Dave. Hi, Dave. Hi, Dave. Yeah. So Focus is our integrators. They're doing all of this. Um, they did the projectors. There's lights that's happening. Uh, they also did an audio upgrade, um, which is the reason for the new speakers. And they've been in here working really hard. His son, John, was literally in here all night, like Saturday night, yesterday, to about 7 a.m. this morning. Uh, and his partner, whose name is JR, really, really great guy, he actually wanted to attend service today because he wanted to be here with us got really sick last night. He vomited three times and had to be taken home, and it was just like an ordeal. So they had literally been working themselves to death in some way um, on our behalf. And, you know, sure, we've hired them to do it, but, you know, they do it because they understand why, what we're trying to achieve, and, and they've been so awesome. Uh, Dave, he's the owner and founder of the company, 
to be here, to do sound for us, just speaks of their servant's heart. Um, and so thank you so much for being here. Really, really. Um, yeah, so, you know, there's other people to thank along the way, which we will do, you know. Um, I've got to make a special shout out now. Um, can, we, can we say, hi, Nikki. Hi. Yeah, Nikki is my partner in crime and all of this. Um, we have been working really hard and getting it done, and she's put in hours and hours in her life calling bids and bids and bids. And so we're still not done yet, but on Easter Sunday, we will be. We will be. It'll be great. Okay, one quick thing about the lights so everyone doesn't freak out. This is 100% brightness, okay? We went from dust to life. Um, when, when things are still, obviously there's things going to be finalized. There's a couple more lights that are coming in, a few more lights we have to install. Uh, when things are up and running, one of the biggest changes you're going to find is that it's not going to be this bright all the time in our services. So if you're like, it's harsh, it's really difficult... Just bear with it a little bit. Um, it's all going to be controlled by the computer, and you're going to see different things happening during worship with lights dimming and colors changing and all to create a sense of ambiance, kind of what you feel when you walk into a stained glass. So it won't be this bright all the time, okay? If you're planning to not ever come back because people can actually see you, <laughs> come back, okay? <laughs> come back. All right. Let's go. Let's preach. I have no clock today, so I'm going to trust Mark Meredith, um, and we're just going to jump in, because I'm trying to preach a whole book. Um, so when we went into this Immerse series, you know, uh, I, there's obviously this question, who's going to preach Leviticus? And I said, oh, I would love to preach Leviticus. Please give me dibs on that, you know, as a worship pastor. And uh, my favorite books of the Bible is uh, Leviticus and Ecclesiastes. So I said, I would love to preach this book. And um, no one offered any resistance to that. So here I am. And let's be honest, right? The book of Leviticus is difficult. It's really hard. It's, it's props to you, all of you, for reading it, sticking with it. Um, it's not easy because you get like lost in the details, and the language is very, very repetitive. Um, God is cares about that very, very much in this text. And so, as you go through it, there's two things, right? It's just difficult to read because it's so repetitive, but then it's also difficult to understand. It's like, what's the point of all of this? Right? You kind of go into it and you're like, okay, there's some sacrifices. And then it's like blood, blood, blood. Yeah. Blood, blood, blood. Right? Blood, blood, blood. And then it's like, oh, if you touch a dead corpse. Right? And if you have this and this. And it just keeps getting lost in the midst of that. Um, and so it, it, it often leaves people confused and thinking, this makes no sense. Why is this book here? You know, I like Genesis. I like Exodus. Leviticus. Mm-mm. Numbers. If it's all going to be accounting, I'm, you know, Deuteronomy, maybe, right? It happens all the time when people are trying, like, their one-year Bible plans. Leviticus is the death of many Christians and their Bible plans. <laughs> Similarly, or maybe, like, in a similar way, um, that, in the way that Leviticus makes no sense, when I first got married, okay, married life made no sense. Zero. And uh, it took time for me to understand the process of marriage, uh, the process of relating with my wife and to her and connecting with her. No one gave me a manual. No one said, this is how you figure out Sarah. I wish they would have. It would have saved me some trouble. Uh, we, are, we were, uh, 11 years ago, when we got married, two very, very, very different 
people. And I had to learn how to connect with her. Now, you guys have known, right? I've talked about my home clothes, bed clothes, and outside clothes. The church knows that. It's a system, right? For those of you who are new and don't know, these are my outside clothes. And when I'm outside of the home, I wear these clothes. But when I go inside the home, I have to put on inside clothes, which is like t-shirts and long pants and things like that. But then when I go to sleep, I have to go into my bed clothes. And then there's this whole repetitive cycle between, do I wear my inside clothes in bed or my bed clothes outside if I take out the trash? It's, it's, a, it's a thing, right? <laughs> but I had to learn it. And after 11 years of marriage, I love it. I prefer it. When I travel, I pack inside clothes, outside clothes, bed clothes. The other thing that I had to learn was drinking water, okay? Before I met Sarah, I did not drink water. This is not a lie. I drank a lot of like Kool-Aid, Tang, High C, Fruit Punch. I did not drink water. I just wasn't raised in a family that drank water. So when we got married, I remember Elise was like, or Sarah was like, we're going to drink water. And she loves water. She mostly drinks water. That's like her MO. And one day she said, I really want to like get this really nice water filter, right? It, it alkalizes our water and it purifies the water. And, you know, I'm not going to tell you how much it was, but it was very, very, very expensive, okay? Like I could have bought like maybe five Xboxes. No, ten Xboxes. <laughs> at least seven, Okay? For the price of this one water filter. Okay? Now the thing is, expensive water, what does it taste like? It tastes like water. Okay? Now, over the period of my life, I've come to love water. I prefer drinking water. I can't drink bottled water. I've totally become a water snob thanks to my wife, and I love her for it, right? Uh, another example. Is one day uh, we were in Boston, that's where I came from, and Sarah is really into beautiful architecture. She loves like going to spaces and looking at the beauty of a space. And, and the Boston Museum, if you haven't been, or library, if you haven't been there, is a really, really, really beautiful place. It's really gorgeous. And so one day I had a free day off, and she was like, hey, I'd love to go to the library. And I said, why are we going to the library? And she said, I just want to look at the building, you know, just walk around. And uh, I said, no, no, definitely not. No, why would I do that with my free time? And she was like, well, what are you going to do? And I'm like, well, I'm in the middle of Final Fantasy and I got to like complete my eight quests to level up before I got to fight the boss. I've been waiting all week to like enter into the world with my sword and my magic. <laughs> so Jada, you're going to stay home and play video games. Yeah, I'm going to stay home and watch video games. And so she actually went to the library by herself. And I stayed home and played video games. And that's how our marriage has survived. We allowed each other to be each other at moments in time. However, we went to Spain a few years ago. Um, and this is how much I've changed because of her. And learning how to relate to her. We were in Barcelona for one day. And I said, honey, let's hit up five museums. And that's what we did. We just went around and looked at the beautiful architecture and looked at all the museums. I had to learn how to walk with her. I had to learn how to connect with her. I had to learn how to relate to her because we were two very, very, very different people. And no one showed me. No one said, this is how you connect with the other person. Now, the same is true for all of us, right? You guys laugh and you resonate because you know this. When we connect with another human being, you don't receive a manual on how to do it, on how to connect with your kids or your friends or your coworkers or your grandparents, or family members, even, even church members. If there was a manual on how we can connect with each other, man, maybe, maybe we would get along, you know? <laughs> I'm the only one laughing. That wasn't meant to, that was supposed to be funny. That was like, that, that's not supposed to hit your heart. That's not the main point. <laughs> but the point is, it's difficult to connect with people. 
In any social connection, we have to work hard at knowing how to relate to someone, to connect with them. And the effort we put into the process determines the closeness of that relationship. Now, it's difficult enough to connect with people who we can see, but how do we connect with a being that we cannot see? How do we connect with a God who maybe exists or maybe doesn't? How does that happen? How do we connect and relate with the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? What is that process supposed to be like? Well, the Israelites knew this question and this struggle because they were a people who had been oppressed. They were taken out of Egypt and were now free from their bondage. And God said, you will be my people and I will be your God. But the problem is, how does a holy being, one that they can't really relate to, one that they're fearful of because he's like a fire on a mountain, you know, a cloud and a pillar. He's all these mysterious things. And when Moses comes back from talking to him, he's glowing like an alien. How do people relate to that being when they were slaves who are just trying to figure it out? grumbling and being horrible to each other in the desert? The answer is Leviticus. That's the answer. Now I know, some of you are like, what? That makes no sense. I didn't understand Leviticus. We're going to preach the whole book today. God calls them out. He connects with them. And he says, I want you to connect with me because I am so holy, I'm so different. The word holy just basically means set apart. And he wants to be in relationship. And he gives them Leviticus. Now watch this. In Leviticus 1, 1 to A, I'm going to read the first verses again. The Lord called to Moses from the tabernacle and said to him, give the following instructions to the people of Israel. When you present an animal as an offering to the Lord, you may take it from your herd of cattle or from your flock of sheep and goats. And then in Numbers, a whole book later, a year after Israel's departure from Egypt, the Lord spoke to Moses in the tabernacle in the wilderness of Sinai. What's the difference between the two passages? Anyone notice? Okay. He's inside. Right? In Leviticus 1, it says that God called to Moses from the tabernacle. But in Numbers, a year after, it says that he spoke to him in the tabernacle. The whole book of Leviticus was God's way of teaching his people how to enter into his presence. It was saying, you and I are totally different people, unlike infinite levels that go beyond human relationships. And I don't want to speak to you from somewhere out where you are, but I want to speak to you right here, where we exist in the same place. And so this is huge because it says something about the heart of God, right? It says that God desires intimacy and connection with us. It also says, however, that he is a being who is infinitely different from us. And so what can we learn from Leviticus this morning? And I'm going to go really, really fast into this. Here's the big statement, one of them at least. Leviticus is an invitation to intimacy with God. Leviticus is an invitation to intimacy with God. Now, that is not saying that we have to do everything Leviticus says. One of you guys who have been believers, you get that. But for God's people at that time in human history, it was his manual for how they could relate to him, know him, and live in a way so they could coexist with him. Now, Leviticus has an interesting structure. It's kind of like an Oreo. Everyone say Oreo. Okay. Uh, in Jewish literature, we would call this a chiasm. 
Okay? A chiastic structure. Where basically there's layers that go like this. And the best part is in the center, like an Oreo. So you'll see one layer, the top layer, that relates to the bottom layer, and one layer that relates to the bottom, middle layer. Do that make sense? A, A, B, B, C, C, Oreo cream? Yeah? Okay. I'm going to show you this thing, and I don't want you to freak out. Let's look at this image. This is from the Bible Project, who've done an incredible amount of work on this. And I don't know, I'd be willing to send this out to you guys if you want to see it and understand it. And there's a lot of writing. We're not going to go through all the details. But there is this chiastic structure that happens. Okay? If you see the top right corner over there, it parallels to the top left corner, and then it works this way towards the center. Does that make sense? You guys following? Okay. So you see there's ritual sacrifices, rituals. There's things that are related to priests, right? Things that are related to purity. And then there's the Day of Atonement. That is how this book is organized. Now, the Jewish writers would do this, both in their poetry and in their verses and sometimes in whole books like this, to highlight what was important and to also bring certain things to remembrance. And so if we go through this in details, you know, the first ritual sacrifices, they're connected to the ritual feasts. They're not the same things, but they're tied to rituals. You know, the priests are ordained in chapters 8 through 10, but in chapters 21 through 22, there's qualifications for priests, right? There's ritual purity in verses 11 to 15, which have to do with like touching dead things and bodily things and all of this. And, and impurity is not a sinful thing. It's normal and temporary, right? But on the other side, there's moral purity. It has to do with the heart. And then in the middle, the Oreo cream is the Day of Atonement, which we're going to talk about later as we go. Now, I'm, I'm not going to preach on every single detail of that. <laughs> it would be here forever. I think there's a few lessons, though, that we can learn about this process of relating with God from these rituals, these things related to priests, and these things related to purity. And, and the big point, if you hear one sentence, right, um, it's this one. Intimacy with God requires intention and sacrifice. Intimacy with God requires intention and sacrifice. We see this at every layer of the book of Leviticus, whether it's the instructions for the rituals, whether it's instructions for the priests, or things related to purity. Intention and sacrifice are two of the main themes that you can see connecting all of those pieces. Now, here's what I mean about intention. When you're choosing an offering, right, to come to the tabernacle, it had to be specific, it had to be either, and, and if you look at the writing, there's instructions on whether it was from a herd or a flock or the gender of the animal was. It had to be without defect. Right? And there was a detailed process. I was going to bring a stuffed animal up here. Well, I cut it open and throw cotton around to signify blood, but I thought that might be a little much, so I didn't do it. But you didn't just pick an animal on your way to the tabernacle. You see what I'm saying? You didn't just walk by and say, oh, oh, I'm late. I'm late to the tabernacle. I was supposed to be there at 10 o'clock and there's, some two, there's a bird. Let's go. <laughs> That's not how this happened. I mean, listen to this from Leviticus 3. Okay, just listen to it. If you present an animal from the flock as a peace offering to the Lord, it may be a male or a female, but it must have no defects. If you present a sheep as your offering, bring it to the Lord, lay your hand on its head and slaughter it in front of the tabernacle. Aaron's sons will then splatter the sheep's blood against all the sides of the altar. The priest must present the fat of his peace offering as a special gift to the Lord. This includes the fat of the broad tail cut off near the backbone, all the fat around the internal organs, the two kidneys and the fat around them near the loins and the long lobe of the liver. These must be removed from the kidneys. And then the priest will burn them on the altar. It's a special gift of food presented to the Lord. 
Can you imagine if Pastor Mark and I were to do this every Sunday morning? He'd be so gross. Really, really gross. There was intention when you brought your offering. You didn't just carelessly go. You had to probably raise that animal yourself. You had to pay attention to the ones that didn't have defects. Or you had to go find it if you purchased it from somewhere or someone. You know, which, which one doesn't have a defect? It had to be just right. Intentional. So when I was dating, there were two times that I did something for Sarah. One that went well and one that was horrible. Okay? We're going to start with the one that was horrible. So uh, I was, when we were dating, there was a period of time where I lived in Tennessee and, and Sarah was... Um, back at, in Texas. I had transferred schools. We had met at the University of Texas, but I was at a different school. And I was on my way home, and I was like, I love bringing gifts, you know, when I arrive. Like, oh, I love you. And she's never heard this, so she might be hearing this for the first time. But I totally forgot to get her a gift and the busyness of finishing finals and stuff. And so uh, I was like, what am I going to get her? And I was in a Hallmark gift shop, and there was this jewelry box, okay? It was like a wooden thing. You know, you turn it, and it plays like a little... Russian ballet music and I was like she's going to hate that but I said I'll make it meaningful right whatever so I like took it I'm a college student I'm poor so I said I wrote a note in there and I said this is the box to hold all our memories and all the things I will buy you one day okay yeah some people are like that's so sweet right I gave it to her I have never seen that box (laughs) in all the times that we have been together Right? And actually, there was a period of time where she confessed to me, I, I hated that thing. It was, mean, it was meaningless. What? What do you mean for all the things you're going to get me? There's nothing you've given me but empty air. <laughs> I don't even like the Russian ballet song that it plays. It's a horrible looking box. You probably bought it from a gift card store. She was right. I bought it from Hallmark. <laughs> it was horrible, okay? I was literally on my way. I just grabbed the thing, wrote a note. There you go. Now, It's very different from what I did in our one-year anniversary. And this is why she may have had different expectations. So we had been dating for one year, and uh, I wanted to do something special. So what I did was I prepared a scavenger hunt around the city of Austin. I had four of my friends hide gifts all over the city. They were meaningful places to us. And then they, like, stood on guards that no strangers would come and take everything. We had dinner at a restaurant. And then, you know, I was like, hey, it's about one year. I gave her this box. And then she opened it up and were, like, four sets of clues. Right? And I was her driver. And she had to figure out what was going on. And so the first one was, like, you know, her favorite snack, which is dried mangoes you know, at the time. And so we're just driving in the car, and, you know, it's, I wrote the riddles myself, you know, like the Riddler, I was channeling Batman, you know, whatever, right? And I wrote them, you know, like cool, whatever, massive riddles and stuff. And uh, she was like, dried mangoes. So I stopped the car, we get the dried mangoes, you know, then we're going, and then, you know, she's like the location and the gift. And, the, and there was a teddy bear, you know, something says, I'll always miss you, but I'm with you. It was like, you know, because we're away and long distance, we didn't have video chat and FaceTime and all that. So it was harder. So this teddy bear is like signifies me and then the third gift was her favorite uh, bath and body work scent lotion and scent uh, which is moonlight, pa- moonlight path um, at the time it was at least uh, Mindy wears it so anytime Mindy smells it I remember the story she's our accountant if you don't know who she is uh, but anyways that was the third gift the fourth gift was a notebook DVD because it was the first date we ever went on ironically we watched it in the afternoon and we were in an auditorium of like 70-year-olds. 
I think they may have came from the nursing home on that special viewing or something. <laughs> and the whole time I was trying to hold her hand, and uh, it was always awkward because there's a couple scenes where you're like, it's kind of getting romantic, and then it goes a little too far. And you're like, I can't hold her hand right now when they're getting undressed. Like, that would be inappropriate. Uh, it was so, I didn't get to hold her hand. That's the point of the story. <laughs> But the notebook was really important to me. Um, and so I got that. And then the last gift was um, we got to this place. I had her blindfolded and we walked kind of, I, you know, and I said, stand here. And then I went in to pick up my guitar. And then when she took off her blindfold, she was in a room of 111 roses that had also been decorated with tons of candles and rose petals everywhere. And uh, I said, there's 111 roses here, three ones, okay? One, the first one to represent one year that we're celebrating. Um, The second one to represent the one love that I think is starting to form between us in some weird way. And the third one um, to represent the one life that I hope we have together. I proposed to her a year later, so we were pretty deep. But I sang to her in the room, you know, she cried, I cried, you know, it's wonderful. Two very different experiences. One that was literally on the way, the other that took hours and hours of planning. That's what intention is. When you came to church this morning or when you go to meet with God, what's your process like? Are you kind of coming on the way, rushing to get to that space? Or is there some intention in your life? Intention as you enter in, intention as you pray, intention as you read. Um, intention is really, really important. It's so deeply related to intimacy because it shows the heart. It shows our truest feelings. And so if we talk about intimacy with God, I think the first thing that Leviticus teaches us is that intention is really important. The second thing that we find is really important in the book is sacrifice. Now when people came to worship they, they always brought a sacrifice. Now, if they were, some sacrifices were willing to say, thank you, Lord, for this, or I'm sorry, but they brought something with them. You know, it was, you never came to the tabernacle without something. You never came to God without something. Um, you came to offer it to him. Now, what's so interesting about this, right, is, uh, have you ever been like in a situation at a wedding or a baby shower, places where like gifts are expected? Anyone? And you don't bring something? You know? It's hard, right? You have to bring something. Well, sometimes, these days, I was asking Sarah about this, and she's like, no, there's exceptions, you know. People are pretty cool these days. But you know what I'm talking about, right? Certain situations where there's an expectation to bring something. If you don't bring something, then it's kind of, I mean, what do you say? I was, I was, right? The place of worship, the tabernacle, was designed to be a place where the people of God brought something to God, not necessarily where they were coming to get something from Him. This is really important. Because in our culture, somehow we have flipped that order around. Myself, along with many other people, gather in churches like this. We come because we need that extra pickup for the week. Or we need a bit of hope. Or we need a bit of love. We need a bit of peace. Now, God will give us those things and there is nothing wrong with asking for them. We can come and ask. But the question is, what are we bringing? 
What's your offering, your sacrifice that you're willing to lay on the altar? I'm not talking about financial things. A sacrifice um, implies that there is a death of something, a death of something, a giving of something. That could be, I don't know, for some of you, it might be singing a song in church. You know, you might be like, I don't sing. You don't want to hear me sing, Brother JD. That might be true, but God might want to hear you sing a little, softly. It might be a sacrifice to get out of your comfort zone and to declare a truth about him because we believe that declaring the truth about God is good. Right? It might be um, your hope. Maybe you're in a situation where you're like, I don't have enough to get through the day or this medical procedure or this failing marriage or my kids becoming monsters that I don't know how to relate to. And maybe you're like, my hope, that's what I bring, that's what I bring, that's what I offer to God and say, I'm going to keep trying because you keep trying. I'm going to keep trying. Maybe it's faith. For people who have never known Jesus, if you're here and you're like, I don't know Jesus, I'm not a Christian, I don't know any of that, I just can't believe the Bible because it's really weird. There's too much blood. (laughs) I know, it's weird. But maybe it's faith that gets sacrificed. The willingness to trust, to let go of doubt. Worship was always meant to be a process in which we don't just get from God, but we give to God. And so what Leviticus teaches us is that intimacy with God requires intention and sacrifice. Intention shows our heart. Sacrifice shows our love, the thing that we're willing to let go of, to to show feelings for another person. If you do those things, it results in intimacy, is what Leviticus says. Now the question is this, how do we do this? All right, We're bringing this plane down, landing it. How do we do this? Because if we look in the Old Testament, the Israelites failed, epically. You know, they couldn't live into this law. They couldn't do enough things to relate to God perfectly. And so the, there's all this exile, and there's all this stuff, and there's all the prophets, and many of you who've read the Bible, you know what I'm talking about. And God literally says, I don't want any more offerings. I just want your heart. They missed it. In the New Testament, the Pharisees also miss it. Right? The Pharisees get such a bad reputation. They were like the do-gooders of our community, the ones that we respect. That's who they were. They did everything right. They followed all the 633 you know, parts of the law. Yet they missed it. When Jesus showed up, he's like, you have missed it completely. Today, when we lean into um, uh, a Christianity or a faith that says we have to do a lot of things, it can become very, very bad, right? We end up with um, church systems and faith organizations that don't reflect the love of God, that somehow become so judgmental um, where they say, like, God hates this particular group, you know, or God hates them, because they're not according to this. So humans have a history of failing. Chad, you can come on up wherever you are. Um, And so this is my answer to the question, how do we do this? We do this by trusting in Jesus. Uh, What we learn about Jesus is that he succeeds where we fail. In our failures to live our lives with intention and sacrifice, Jesus chose to live his life with intention and sacrifice. 
He said, I want to be with all of you, with the world. I don't want to speak from heaven. I want to be in the heart of people. And he was reflecting the heart of God. And so he chooses to leave heaven, comes down, lives his life, shows great intention. For 30 years, he, he lived and understood the human condition. He was just a blue-collar worker in his town. He probably had friends, and who knows, he may have been bullied because you know, he was a refugee at the point of his life. I mean, there's so many things about Jesus' life that we don't know, right? But he understood the human condition. He lived with intention towards us, for us. And eventually, it led him to the greatest sacrifice, where he gave his own life. So that you and I could be in God and not be outside of God. Because this sacrificial system, which we can get into, was temporary. See, all the animals and all the blood and everything, it only temporarily covered sin. It didn't remove it. And so God didn't just give Leviticus, but he gave his only son. Because he said, I no longer want to speak to you from a distance. I want to know you intimately. Jesus goes to the cross, he gives his life, he resurrects from the dead, and in him we find life. A beautiful word called grace, which says in our human attempts, in all our failings, we can come to that day of atonement, that Oreo cookie, that you used to be able to go only once a year, according to Leviticus, you can go every day, all the time with boldness and confidence because of the intention and sacrifice of Jesus. So where are you this morning? Where is your intimacy with God? Um, I want to challenge you to consider that question. Intimacy takes intention and sacrifice. Um, My marriage with Sarah, (laughs) when I do premarital counseling, I tell... um, my, the people that I do premier counseling with, that marriage often feels like a thousand deaths. But you know what? I'd be willing to do them all over again because it leads to a deeper intimacy. Uh, a marriage falls apart if there is an intention or sacrifice. And I want to say to you that even though you live in grace, we live in grace, our relationship with God, our intimacy with Him suffers when our hearts aren't intentional. And so the key, you know, how do you, what do you do? How do you manage this? Um, we come to the table of communion, remember Jesus and his grace, and we confess. That's the simple process. And so uh, before we go to the table, I just want to take a few moments of silence. Where's your intimacy with God? How's your intention? And what's your sacrifice? Let's sit with that for a little bit.